0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we pick a new book that is particularly interesting to us, and we interview the author of that book. And this week we have a real treat because we're talking to Stephen Harper about his book, The Lawyer Bubble, A Profession in Crisis, as I told Stephen before we started rolling. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we pick a new book that is particularly interesting to us, and we interview the author of that book. And this week we have a real treat because we're talking to Stephen Harper about his book, The Lawyer Bubble. A profession in crisis as I told Stephen before we started rolling this uh, book answers a lot of questions that I had but was too lazy to ask and then he responded you wouldn 't have found the answers anyway so so I think that we're uh, we 're definitely in for a treat today because he 's going to uh, open our eyes about what is a profession in crisis and there have been rumors about this for a long time again i I 've heard things that the rumblings that the legal community is not not in very good health but uh, we'll find out more about that in the course of the interview Stephen maybe you could begin the interview by telling 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 us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, I was born and raised in Minneapolis. Uh, uh, Went to uh, uh, college at Northwestern where I was uh, in a combined program, actually. Got a bachelor's and a master's degree in economics um, in four years and then went off to Harvard Law School. Uh, I'm married uh, to the same woman after 30, I better get this right, 37 years, um, and we have uh, three adult children, none of whom is a lawyer for which I claim neither responsibility nor credit, um, but I, I, after law school, I went to work at a big law firm, Kirkland & Ellis. Big in those days meant I was about, uh, I think, the 150th lawyer, which wouldn't qualify it as a big firm at all today, um, uh, and I always have to qualify everything that I'm saying by by letting people know that I actually am, I guess an increasingly rare minority of lawyers, which is that I had a terrific, I had a terrifically enjoyable and satisfying career. So I came at all of this—that is, all of the things that we're going to talk about—from a very positive uh, viewpoint and a very positive perspective. So it's—I'm not a sour grape story at all. I did what I thought lawyers uh, would do when I first formed expectations about what being a lawyer would be, and I was very fortunate. Um, so mm-hmm. that, uh, that's, uh, in a nutshell, that's sort of me, I guess.
0: Well, that is a good thing. I know that uh, in my own profession, which is being a professor in the arts and letters, there was a golden time in which people had careers like that. Um, it's, it's been over for about 25 years now. Uh, yeah. and, and people's expectations still have not caught up. They still don't understand exactly uh, what it means to enter academia, at least uh, academia in the arts and letters. So, well, let's talk about the... Primary findings of the book. This is the things that the sort of da- data. People say data points. I always just say data.
1: <laughs> yes, right. right. <laughs> I don't know what a data yeah, point is. It's not is. a point. It's, it's not data. a point. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's just, a process it's among just, other things, it's frankly. Data.
0: So uh, one of the things you say is that uh first of all, there are way too many lawyers. Can you give us the numbers on that? Or graduates of law school?
1: Yes, that's pretty straightforward. We turn out every year about 45 or 46,000 lawyers. Ironically, the number continues to grow even as the bad news about the profession also increases. Uh, But we turn out about 46,000 lawyers a year, and we have jobs, long term, full time, long term jobs that require a legal degree for about half of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And the U.S. Department of. Bureau of Labor Statistics Department of Census uh, uh, is projecting that through at least the end of this decade, that will be about the continuing trend. That is, we'll be generating twice as many lawyers as there are anticipated openings. And by openings, that's not just new legal jobs. That's that's, that it takes into account attrition, it takes into account retirement, death, and, and everything else. So uh, we, have, we have double the number of lawyers that we have jobs for.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me ask a couple of questions uh, that I, again, I know from my discipline. The, the, the American Historical Association, we have a similar sort of thing in history. So there are about twice as many, I think over twice as many PhDs in history as there are jobs in history. And uh, the American Historical Association is always saying that, A, a lot of people go to history graduate school and don't really want to become historians. Yeah although i've never met them personally right uh, and b that even though they don't get jobs they're extraordinarily well qualified to do lots of other things are either of those does the
1: well you know that that last point really drives me crazy because what's been happening over the last couple of years at least with respect to lawyers what's been happening over the last several years is that people are starting young people are starting to figure out that that the, the legal profession may not be the rosy Uh, rosy game that uh, they've been led to believe. And so law school applications have been plummeting quite dramatically in the last three years down from 100,000 seven or eight years ago to about 60,000 this year. That's still way too many and it's still more than there are uh, seats in law schools. But here's the problem and this is what really drives me crazy. Law school deans now in the continuing effort to 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 fill their classrooms have really embraced that line that is the line is hey look you know come and get a legal degree maybe you won't be a lawyer but there are lots of great things that you can do with a legal degree there are lots of people who are very successful who have legal degrees but then have gone into other walks of life they've gone into business they've gone into you know any number of things uh, uh, Lloyd Blankfein, the chairman of, of Goldman Sachs, was a year ahead of me at law school, uh, and there are lots of examples like that. And, and that's certainly true. There are people who wind up, who have law degrees, who wind up with non-law practice jobs, that, and they're very successful and they're very fulfilled. The, but but the problem with that is now now um, you wind up spending 150 or 200 thousand dollars for that degree. Um, you wind up 85% of graduates today, law school graduates today, have educational debt that exceeds $100,000, and they can't discharge it in bankruptcy. So you're stuck with a home mortgage without the house, and you can never move out. Mm. Um, and so it's all well and good to say, "Yeah, come to law school because look, the whole world will open up to you." But you know, it's it's really not fair because it's not really opening up in that way for the vast majority of graduates who are stuck in jobs. Where they and you, you just you go online and you can see the, or or pick up a newspaper, or or, and there's some story about some, uh, person who's a who's a grad recent graduate of law school who's worried that you know when the time comes that they're going to have to try to figure out whether they can send their kids to school. They're still going to be paying off their own student loans.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Um, So I think that's really a I I think that's really a, a, a misleading. Tack for law school deans in particular, and they've become very aggressive about it lately. They've, they've, you know, they've taken to the New York Times editorial pages and talked about, you know, look what a great what a great thing it is to become a lawyer because even if you can't get a job, I understand, you know, they they, and they admit the statistics now. You know, until two years ago, there was no there, there was no detailed information on what 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 these graduates wound up doing. If you looked at the industry wide data. For the for the entire legal profession, you would have seen 93, 94, 95 percent quote unquote employment rates. But what they weren't required to tell you, that is, what the law schools weren't required to tell anybody, was that some of those jobs were part time jobs, some of those jobs were waiting tables, some mm-hmm. of those jobs were babysitting. I mean, if you were employ- if you had, if you were employed in anything at all, um, even if you were employed, and this is the height of cynicism, I think. Even if you were employed only on the date February 15th, nine months after graduation, uh, which was the key date for purposes of measuring employment, even if the law school had put you on the payroll for purposes of that day or week only, that counted
2: as employed.
1: Mm -hmm. But the real number, it turns out, was about 55% Mm -hmm. uh, in long-term, full-time jobs. jobs that require a legal degree.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, in history, people admit the statistics, too. They just don't. Uh, and then they will say these things by way of, um, I guess, explanation of their bad behavior, if you'll excuse me that.
1: Uh, right. They, oh, it's terrible behavior. It's yeah, reprehensible behavior. Um, yeah,
0: because they just keep accepting people. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the demand and the supply side of in law school. Uh, it was being the demand side, that is students that want to come. Why do so many people want to come if, uh, if, if half of them aren't going to get jobs in law?
1: Well, because there's a, been a colossal failure of the, of the market. There's a failure of information. Um, as I mentioned, if you were looking, even as recently as two years ago, in the middle of the Great Recession, in the depths of the Great Recession, if you were looking at so-called employment rates for law school graduates, the number that you saw overall was 90-plus percent, uh, not the 55% that reflected the employment of people who had actual lo- law jobs, full-time law jobs. Um So in in, in one level, there's a level of misinformation. I would even go so far as to call it deceptive information that the American Bar Association, through its questionnaires, allowed law school deans to basically pump up the numbers. The second part of the problem has to do with how law schools are funded and how law school education in particular is funded. And that is, it's funded by uh, tuition dollars uh, that come very, very easily to students, and they're backed by the federal government. It's extremely easy to get a loan to go to, to go to law school, and uh, it's 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 a lot of money. And uh, the law schools, and once they have your tuition, have no real financial skin in the game after that point.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and then the third thing, of course, is is endless, and that's really this is really why I started teaching an undergraduate course and and ultimately wrote the book and that's the problem of what psychologists call confirmation bias most people a third of people who decide to go to law school make that decision before they're out of high school another third make that decision before the end of their sophomore year in college and the, the balance of them are people who, many of whom, wind up going to law school as a default solution because they can't figure out what to do next. Or maybe somebody like you talked them out of going to history graduate school. <laughs> um, but the problem with it is, you know, the images that are, that, are, uh, that are embedded in people's minds from a very early time. I mean, we all read To Kill a Mockingbird in junior high school or, or high school. Um, everybody watches TV. You know, I grew up watching Perry Mason. Uh, other people in another generation, it was L.A. Law. Now you think you're going to grow up and you're going to become Alicia florick in The Good Wife, and you're going to be um, cross-examining a, a key witness as a young associate. You know, in, at trial you'll cross-examine this witness, win the case, you'll go home to your your, your wife, forget about her her philandering husband for a minute. Um, And and then, oh, by the way, after only four years, you're going to make equity partner and you're going to, boy, you're going to make a lot of money and you're going to dress really well for the rest of your life, too. Well, you know, lots of people can look at that and say, well, that's just TV. No one believes it. But these images become very embedded and it creates a kind of confirmation bias problem in the sense that, you know, when when you're a young person and you have a notion, and this isn't even limited to young people, but if you have a notion of what you want the world to look like or what you think the world does look like, psychologists will tell you that you will tend to jettison data and input and information that contradicts that preconceived notion of what you think or want your life to be like or, or that image to be like and that's what happens so that a, a big part of the problem too is frankly undergraduates that are tracking themselves to law school with some vague notion that it'll all turn out okay you know it's a profession it, you know it's it's gotta have job security it's gonna have all sorts of things um, and it's very tough then to confront the harsh reality of what could actually turn out to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, no, that that all makes sense to me, and I think the same thing happens in, in history, and actually in some of the hard sciences as well, people. Sure. Think they're going to win the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and maybe some of them will, not very many. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, supply side here. You've already talked about it a little bit in the sense that the government funds these, these people. So wh- why is it the case, just to ask the the bald question, Yeah. why is it the case... That law schools, and we'll treat them as a, a as a as one cohort now, except so many students,
1: because there's money in it um, it's really easy and in, in that sense, you know the lawyer bubble and and the whole phenomenon that I talk about in the book is a is a is a slice of I think what ails america it's a It's a preoccupation with short term thinking. Uh, without regard to some of the long term implica- implications. And in particular, people wind up, in, in the case of law school, the short term thinking goes to really two things. It goes to trying to maximize uh, revenues, because in many of these uh, law schools, perhaps most of them, law schools have become a profit center for the universities. Um, you know, tuition in law schools since 1985, on average, private law schools, has quadrupled. Um, it has doubled in the last 10 years. Well, that hasn't happened anywhere else in higher education.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, you think about what it costs to train a doctor and you can say, okay, I can understand why tuition is expensive, but law school tuition now in most universities exceeds medical school tuition. Mm-hmm. There's no cost justification for that, but there's a strong uh, profit justification for it and, and, you know, you add another five or ten or twenty students to a, to a class, uh, you're not, not going to add any additional cost in terms of what it, what's required um, to run the law school. So that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it is the, is the absurdity of the methodology of the U.S. news rankings and the perverse outcomes that result from law school deans that pander to that ranking methodology. I can give you one example. Um, we were just talking about tuition. Well, one of the key methodological points uh, in the U.S. news rankings is average expenditures per student. Well, if you if your average expenditures per student are higher, you move your ranking up. So you want to you want to build a new big library, you want to new big, build a new big student center. You're going to increase your rankings. As I mentioned at the outset, there's no check on it because the government's going to fund it all. And if the and if the if the if the graduate can't get a job, that's not going to be the law school's problem. Although it will have a residual effect, maybe eventually, uh, on the ranking formula, depending how specific. You know, the ABA makes people get about what kind of jobs graduates have. Um, So you get this vicious circle where you have this escalating tuition in order to fund uh, greater law school expenditures in order to increase rankings. And it's 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 absurd. Uh, And so there you go.
0: Yeah, I see what you mean.
1: Um, One kind of wonders, though, why there
0: isn't some sort of just market entry a law school that comes along and says, okay, we're accredited. but We're going to give you a law degree for a fraction of the price.
1: Um yeah, you know, there have been there have been various uh of those things that people talk about those things now. But see here's the pro here's one issue with that. The the market is, is very segmented in the sense that what you really have is a group of schools at the very top, um and and I, I don't mean that by that in, in a ranking sense, but if even without rankings, you know, U.S. News rankings are only about 25 years old, and somehow magically, lawyers and law schools managed to find each other before there was any ranking system in place. Mm-hmm. You knew that the good, you knew where the top schools were, and it had to do with selectivity, um, and you know, and that sort of stuff. And the, top, the students who are graduating from the very top schools are getting jobs. They're, mm-hmm. they're, you know, those employment rates, although there are only a dozen schools where the, the long-term employment rates uh, for, law, for law degree uh, positions are in excess of 80%. But the, the kinds of schools that you would describe as sort of entering and offering uh, cheaper education and so forth, um, th- those are going to be, at the, for the most part, at the bottom end of things. Those are going to be people who, who are not going to be able to get jobs mm-hmm. when they get out anyway. And so in a sense, it's uh, it would be it would be a terrible development in a way if what you wound up doing was producing even more lawyers mm-hmm. um, than we're producing now. Mm-hmm. So how would you uh, respond to the
0: argument that um, I have heard some of my libertarian colleagues, not that there are many of them in academia, make, yep. and that is, well, they want to come and so we just take them
1: uh... that's the argument and that's the way that deans defend their reprehensible behavior but that that only works and a libertarian will concede this to you as well i think if the markets are perfect uh, or at least sufficiently well-functioning that you don't have massive distortions and when you have number one no financial accountability for law schools for the outcomes that they generate for their students that's a huge miss in terms of the market that's a huge disconnect when you have law schools uh, not just permitted but actually sanctioned by the ABA, in, in able to engage in behavior that I regard, I would frankly regard as deceptive, in terms of describing, um, you know, employment opportunities for most of these graduates, uh, that's another huge disconnect. Um, so you, you've got to make all kinds of assumptions about whether the market is performing well before you can say, well, it's, as long as people want it, we're going to give it to them. If they want it because you're not giving them good information or they want it because you're subsidizing financially behavior that is frankly destructive, um, then that's really no no that's no that's solution.
0: Right. So it's kind of a bait and switch. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Right. There's some of that in history as well. Uh, I, I guess um, – so there really is a big distinction between these sort of elite law schools that do a good job of placing their students, and then lesser law schools. Is it, right. is it bimodal, so to say, or is it sort of it a scale? Or how, is, what, how um, should one think about that?
1: Interesting question. I, I think that, the, the, as I mentioned, there are there are a dozen schools that do better than eighty percent. Um, there are um, a third of law schools, sixty six, have. Uh, fewer than, than 50% of their graduates that get long-term, full-time degree-required jobs. So I'm not sure what it would look like in terms of a, a bell curve yeah, or a, so was, yeah, a non-bell curve yeah, or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, there are, you know, for example, there are 26 schools, about 13%, you know, had fewer than 40% uh, places, mm-hmm. um, 5% under under a third. So it's... it's um, it it's sort of an odd distribution i guess is the best way to put it mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, but clearly
1: if you you know and clearly if you go if you if you wind up in one of the top schools you're you're going to be okay in terms of getting a job although there's a there's a great line that uh, i wish it were mine but it's not you know even for those uh, for those new lawyers um it, it may feel like law school is a pie eating contest where first prize has turned out to be more pie yeah um because sometimes those jobs don't turn out to be particularly uh, particularly, uh, as particularly they, satisfying as, as they might have thought, which is, of course, part two of the book.
0: Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that I have a friend that went to law school and a very elite law school who said this, and I'm sure he didn't make it up. He said that, you know, law school was really terrific. I enjoyed every minute of it. The trouble was, when I was done, I was a lawyer.
1: <laughs> um, that's too bad. That's too bad. And, and you know, I was one of those. You know, there aren't very many of us, I guess, who actually enjoyed law school. But I enjoyed it as well. You know he did too.
0: He liked it. So, yeah. So tell, I, this is a bit of a digression, but I asked yep. you in the pre-interview. I want, really want to know this. What do you do in law school? They're three uh, years, and what are they?
1: Uh, well, it's, the, each year is different. Let's start with that. The first year, if any of, if anybody has ever read One L or, or seen the movie The Paper Chase um uh, it's 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 sort of an experience like that it's a it's a it's six or eight courses over the course of a year typically um a couple of the courses actually go all year uh civil procedure and contracts when i was a student went all year i assume they still do um and it's uh, all taught by a socratic method uh which can be very intimidating there are professors who decide that you know that they're going to be tough and mean and and all sorts of other things because somebody I guess did that to them or or scared them when they were in their crib. I describe you know in the undergraduate course I teach we cover those kinds of people and I describe those I describe those professors as academic terrorists. Yeah, right. Um, and and they really they have no reason to behave the way they behave. But but the process is a Socratic discussion, which is uh, basically a question a question from a professor leads to an answer, which leads to another question, and there's always. You know and so on you go to the very end of it, uh, but you learn substantive things, and you also learn in the first year uh, what they say is how to think like a lawyer, which i I think is really a code for developing an analytical ability to separate relevant from irrelevant to be able to put together a cogent argument in support of a particular position uh, and those sorts of things but it is a the first year of law school at least to me is a is a is a transformative experience in terms of being nothing like. Be being be nothing like anything else you've ever done mm-hmm. in an academic setting. The second year tends to be more substantive courses, so you learn the substantive law of corporations or antitrust or constitutional law, uh, taxation, you know, that sort of stuff. And then the third year, I would tell you in general, most most practicing lawyers would agree, uh, is by and large a complete waste of time. Um, and uh, and that's because you're really by the time you're done with your second year, you really do have a sense that you've you've gotten out of law school just about everything that it can give you um, and you really want to get on with whatever your life is going to be um, but unfortunately the, the vast majority of states impose accreditation requirements on law schools that, in, that require the equivalent of three calendar years of, of, uh, of law school in order to be able to, to take the bar exam so mm-hmm. uh, that we're stuck with a third year for a while although increasingly now Law schools, I think, to their credit, of moving to more clinical and what they call experiential kinds of uh, real-world um, uh, stuff—legal uh, aid clinics, um, you know, arbitrations, internships, that kind of kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's probably that, that makes the third year more palatable. But I think it, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's not adding anything really to the to. Uh, to the employability of students in terms of creating job, more jobs for them. Mm-hmm. So, in that first
0: two years, is there any difference among law schools in terms of what they learn or the course structure, or is it pretty
1: very much like- little? Very little. Um, you know, the, uh, the the case method is the way that the the particularly the first year is taught almost entirely by the case method, and to, to large extent, depending on the on the course, uh, many classes use it in the. Uh, in the second year as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the case method is just you, you read cases and you try to distill from appellate court and Supreme Court opinions what are the sort of governing principles that, that carry forward into different, different spheres of legal activity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and, and you would find those experiences uh, across law schools remarkably similar.
0: Mm-hmm. So it costs the same over most or all law schools, and they learn the yep. same thing over most or all law schools. Yep. Yet some of these law schools are elite. Why is that?
1: Um, well, because at the end of the day, uh, I guess every society has to figure out some way to make distinctions, and uh, distinctions based on uh, selectivity, based on you know uh, measures or perceived measures of intelligence. Although, don't get me started on the LSAT because mm-hmm. I think that's a disaster of a test mm-hmm. uh, in terms of whether it, 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 mean, it means anything meaningful to people. Um, but it's not unlike being in a classroom. You know, you in any in any setting, you're going to wind up with some students who are stronger than others, and some who are going to do better than others uh, for whatever reasons, whether it's uh, innate talent or ambition or, or something else. And in general, you're going to wind up, you know, for the most part, there are very notable exceptions. I mean, there are some people who are at the top of, of law schools that are not the very top law schools, but they're, mm-hmm. they would have done very well in any law school, but sure. for whatever reason, you know, they're not in them.
0: Sure, um, sure. I mean, I'm reminded of something that um, I determined earlier in my teaching career, and that is that about 90% of the value of a Harvard degree is gained the minute you get the acceptance letter.
1: I, I, you know, I can understand that. I, I, I can understand that sentiment, and I think there is, there is, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting question, you know, and you know, certainly there were people in my law school class uh, at Harvard who you'd you'd look you'd look down the row and you'd think, you know, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. Now, mostly my attitude about being at Harvard was I thought they had just made a terrible mistake. I thought I had been fortunate <laughs> beyond my wildest dreams. In fact, I was so so. Uh, thrilled at the prospect of, of going there that the, the same day, and this is a true story. Uh, my wife will confirm it for you. The same day that they sent me my acceptance letter, I mailed in my tuition deposit on the theory that at that point I had some kind of binding contract and they couldn't correct
0: yeah, me. I, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, that's good. So, so uh,
1: so let's go on to
0: um, – well, I think before we depart that, let's talk a little bit more about um, these ABA and U.S. News rankings. Uh, w- yeah. When when do they arise? And what do they do? What do they supposedly measure, and how are they used?
1: Yeah, the, the ABA has been uh, asking law schools to provide uh, information for accreditation purposes for years and years and years. The, ABA, the The U.S. News has taken much of that data and used them as a basis for ranking. Um, And that that didn't begin until 1987, US News came out with a ranking of the first 20 law schools. And ironically enough, even as recently as 1997, law school deans were telling students in an open letter, the vast majority, like 160 out of 179 accredited law schools at that time, uh, the deans were telling prospective students in an open letter that they sent out, Basically, the, the, the rankings are out there. U.S. News is one that's, uh, frankly, an example of arbitrariness um, developed by editors who are not lawyers. And please don't let these rankings uh, influence you in the exercise of your judgment about where the, whether or where to go to law school. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out those, the deans were a lot more effective in giving that advice than in taking it themselves. Because <laughs> um, what, what has happened since then, I will tell you, and, and deans will admit this, um they they pander to the ranking methodology so that um and i, I gave the example before of the uh, uh, of the, uh, the expenditures per student you know they they're doing all sorts of things and and it's a, a lot of gamesmanship, but they're doing all sorts of things um, in order to enhance their rankings based on the methodology um, in, in ways that just defy reason um, uh and, and they're certainly not in the best interest of the of the students so uh... for example if you are if you're a law school dean and you want to increase your revenues um, one easy way to do it is by accepting a lot of transfer students after the first year because um, those people go directly to the bottom line by and large they're not eligible for financial aid and so they become a little sort of transfer students uh, from other law schools become a, a little profit center after the first year and and guess what their lsat scores don't count for purposes of the U.S. News methodology. So Mm. if you rejected somebody as an entering first-year student because their LSAT score was too low, you can solicit them as a second-year transfer student, let them in, take their money, um, not offer them financial aid, and you won't affect your law school ranking. And you go through every single methodological uh, element of the U.S. News ranking, and you can find a similar absurdity and very often scandals associated with with uh, law schools that had been caught actually cheating and submitting false numbers uh,
0: mm-hmm. to the ABA. Mm-hmm. But I mean, from the perspective of the elite law schools, these things are gold. I mean, aren't yeah. they? they because they reach the same conclusions every time. I remember when I was working actually in an earlier career, uh, we did some sort of statistical analysis of the U.S. News and World Report um, ranking of colleges and universities, and it turned out that the uh, best predictive factor was the age of the college or university.
1: <laughs> <It's> unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. But, 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 but by no means surprising. Yeah. It's, so. uh, yeah, it's, uh, it reinf- you know, it, it, it's, at the top, at the top, things don't change very much in terms of the groups, the so called top 12 or T14 or the top 14 yeah. law schools. But, you know, the, where, where the crazy stuff is happening. But, but I'll tell you what, some of those are doing the same kind of manipulative stuff. Uh, by you know, it's it's they're they're because they're, they're trying to hang on where they are as well, but the notion, and I had student, I had students tell me this, the notion that they're gonna decide where to go to law school um, in the following way: if I get into law school number 22 uh, and law school number 25, I'm gonna go to law school number 22 because um, that's the higher ranked school. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable! Yeah, it's just yeah. unbelievable to me. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: But this is another problem, you know. With our, that, this is a pervasive cultural phenomenon. This notion that we can somehow seize on a single metric or or a collection of metrics that allow us to just immediately make a decision in ways that don't require any independent thought. You know, we're we're just, we're com- we're totally obsessed with the, the superficial appeal of a number. Mm-hmm, as, mm-hmm. as the answer to everything, and you you know you pick up a uh, you, you, you see it everywhere. I mean, once you think about it for a minute, you see it everywhere. I mean, you you look at some some company that missed its uh, missed its uh, estimated quarterly profits by by two cents, and it goes down thirty percent or something. Mm-hmm. You know, you you talk to an educator about um, how they're testing kids in elementary school to see how many words they can read in a minute, but without regard to whether or not the kid understands any of the words. That he or she is reading, you know, mm-hmm. but we, but we have the metric, you know, and the metric is words per minute, and that's the same thing here. It's U.S. News rankings, mm-hmm. um, and 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 when we get to talking about big firms, it's a similar kind of problem with mm-hmm. a different kind of rankings.
0: Well, people love lists because they do the thinking for you,
1: right? Precisely, <laughs> that's exactly right. I don't have to think about this anymore. Yeah, um, and um, and yeah. besides, isn't life complicated enough? Can't you make something easy for me?
0: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, it. I want to ask this question. I we, we're, we're, I just have to ask this question. Is there any benefit other than you might get a better job to going to uh, one of these top 14 than really going to one of the sort of, you know, Kansas State or something? I'm from Kansas, so I don't know if yeah. Kansas State yeah. has a law school. KU does, though. KU does. Yeah,
1: yeah. well, well uh, the first thing I would say is there are some terrific lawyers, There's some terrific uh, law professors, and there are some outstanding uh, students at schools that are not in the top 10 law schools. I mean, they just are they, 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 for whatever reason they've they've wound up in in some place that isn't a very top school and that and frankly, that's because getting into some of those top places has become um you know something of a random event. i mean you know yeah. the competition is intense to get into these places mm-hmm. and you know there there's some decisions that make no sense in terms of who gets in and who doesn't so mm-hmm. um in that sense uh, there there's not a great difference i I do think though the qualification that you added to, to the question is an important one, which is uh, apart from the ability to get a job, um, does it make a difference? And that's a pretty big qualifier. Yeah. Um, so that if you're looking at a sure. situation where you've got a decent shot at a six-figure job uh, coming out of a, out of a top law school, versus uh, you know struggling to figure out you know whether you can even get uh, something that'll that'll pay. Uh, you know, forty or $50,000 sure. a year, which is still not bad. Uh, but when you're coming out with $200,000 of student right. loan, that's a huge burden.
0: Yep. As they used to say, I don't think they say this anymore. If it's as easy to marry a rich man as a poor man, you should probably marry a rich man.
1: Yeah, I never bought that either. You know, marry, marry for love, yeah. marry for love. Because here's what happens. They don't you know, say that anymore. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, you know. Yeah, and and you know what'll happen to The rich man or marry the rich woman. You know, for all you know, they're, they're they'll gamble it all away or yeah, fritter right. it fritter it away before you can even right. take advantage of it. So
0: let's let's talk about uh, big law firms. I only have one little sort of brief uh, sort of. Uh, uh, bit of knowledge about this. I had a friend who I went to college with, and he was uh, universally acknowledged as, like, the smartest guy in his class. He was a year ahead of me, and then he went to Harvard Law School, and he went to work for this big uh, white shoe law firm. I don't know why they're called white shoe. You'll have to explain that to me.
1: Um, I'm not sure the answer to that one. So, yeah,
0: and, and so anyway, he went to this, huge, this big law firm him in Japan. He made a lot of money, and then he quit. Huh. And now, as far as I can tell, the guy, he works at some sort of public interest law firm. Or He doesn't really yeah. do cases or anything. He's just like I'm done. How
1: with long this. was he? How long was he in his? Uh, I, th- big-
0: I think he. I think he did it for four or five years. Right. And then he's just like, I can't do this anymore.
1: Yeah. Well, that's not unusual. That's the. Uh, you know, the attrition rate, the uh, average attrition rate for big law firms, um, five year attrition rate is is around eighty percent, maybe Jeez. a little higher. So if you if you start with a class of a hundred, you know, new graduates in a particular law firm, after five years, twenty of them will still be left. And of that group, after another four or five years or six years, maybe, maybe five of them or four of them will become equity partners in their mm-hmm. firm. Um, some of that has to do with the model. Uh, the model actually requires attrition because that's what makes it so lucrative. You, you think of it as a pyramid and you've got all the worker bees at the bottom um, and uh, you need to have the attrition so that you can continue to, to limit entry into the ownership group at the top. Um, And some of it is, and some of it, so it's by design in that sense. But a lot of it too is, you know, the thing I hear a lot now from young lawyers is, you know, I know this is going to be a a tough and horrible life, um, but I've got to do it to burn off my debt, and then once I do that, I can do what I really want to do with my law degree. Um, And so, but you know, that's a that's an example too of a series of self-inflicted wounds. You know, the 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 evolution of the prevailing model has made it far a far more hostile place. Uh, for young people, generally, I think, and even even people who are not young find it a much more hostile place. It's the same kind of problem when you decide that what you're going to all you're going to do is focus on a short-term metric, and if the short-term metric, in the case of big law firms, is average partner profits in in the current year, um, that's going to drive you to all sorts of behavior that causes you to ignore things you can't measure. So whats tell me what the how I measure the value of collegiality how do right. I measure the value of mentoring? how do I measure you know the value of even something like institutional stability um, where you know you want to have a, you know people lose a sense of loyalty because why should I be loyal to somebody that isn't going to be loyal to me mm-hmm. or something so mm-hmm. what uh, what percentage of lawyers
0: actually work for these large law firms and that is I guess over a yep. hundred or hundred and fifty uh, lawyers? I don't, what, yeah, what's big loss, offer? The, the
1: cutoff is around the cutoff. I think is around two, between is around two hundred. Okay. So if it's over two hundred to two hundred and fifty, somewhere in there, and you know the largest firm in the world has just got four thousand lawyers in it. Wow. Um, the uh, and roughly and that's the other sort of uh, that's the other sort of uh, shell game in all this or bait and switch, if you will. The, the percentage of lawyers um, that wind up in these firms is between ten and fifteen percent of the entire profession. So they, they are the—that's where all the money is. Uh, that's where much of the prestige is. That's where law schools spent a lot of time telling prospective lawyers, "Hey, come here and look—you're going to make big money at one of these big firms." Um, but you know, ten percent of ninety percent of law school graduates wind up going somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but they exert tremendous influence. They—they they exert an influence that's far, far greater than their numbers in terms of the influence on the profession. And and one of those influences has been the evolution to what I not what I call the prevailing business model, um, and that's what we've done. You know, we've done that in all areas of life too. You know, talk to uh, talk to doctors about what's happened to medicine, um, and that they're at the mercy of bean counters who are not, um, you know, who, who aren't, aren't medical practitioners. Um, you you can you see it everywhere, and it's the same phenomenon here. We've we've imported into uh, the legal profession. Many business school type techniques and concepts, uh, all of which are, you know, maybe well and good. You know, as I mentioned, I have an advanced degree in economics. I'm not an anarchist. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's a there's a great line that's uh, incorrectly attributed to uh, to Einstein, but he'd had it on his blackboard. Um, and, uh, not everything that counted, not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the great trap that. Many, many big firms have fallen into,
2: mm-hmm. and again,
1: I have to qualify all this by saying that i, I was lucky you know i it, 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 but, but part of it isn't luck, part of it is that the the profession has changed the the big firms um, are different from from the, the way they were when I entered the profession and and they've become, as I say, I think just far more hostile to anything that looks like a balanced life, anything that looks like a legitimate career a long-term career option for a young person. Um, all those things have become, you know, the road to, to equity ownership in these places have become much, much more difficult. Um, and all that has implications for people's attitude about their work and their satisfaction with their careers.
0: Mm-hmm. And what are the, what's the data on that? They, did they say that people are satisfied or unsatisfied, or what did they say?
1: Six, six out of ten lawyers um who have been practicing 10 years or more, affirmatively counsel young people to stay away from law. <laughs> which is, that's tragic. I mean, that's just tragic. tragic. And, and, the, and, the, and the most dissatisfied in the group are in big firms where they make the most money. Yeah. So the paradox of, of, uh, of wealth is in full full force. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, maybe you could describe a little bit, and again, this is a, a, I don't know anything about this. What do these people do? I mean, you, you're fresh out of law school. You went to one of the big 14, and you get this... Uh, uh, you get this job as a, I don't know, what are they called, junior associate or something? I don't yeah, know, a new min- associate. Minion sure. or something? So and uh-huh. what do you do? What, what is your job?
1: Uh, well, it, it varies, um, but, you know, many times what you're going to wind up doing is going to feel like uh, work that you didn't have to go to law school to be able to do, <laughs> um, but you're going to be billed out at a very nice hourly rate uh, to the client who pays it, um, and uh uh, you know, it's uh, one of the problems is that, for example, let's take a typical large case or a large matter. You wind up with a team of lawyers. You maybe have a assi- an assignment that says, "Okay, I want you to do is sit at this computer screen and I want you to be reviewing documents uh, before we produce them to the other side, um, or before we make them available in, in some context." Um, and you just, you might be doing that for for hours and days at a time as part of a, a large task. Um, along with another army of uh, an army of people like you who are doing the same things and the the problem one of the problems is that hourly rates in big law firms have become so high that it takes those large you know gigantic matters in order to justify them mm-hmm. and the smaller matters smaller cases um, that are actually quite rewarding for young people uh, are not cost-effective for the firm to handle so for example when i was a uh, even as a third-year associate um... i was trying case, I was a first chair trying cases you know in federal court in front mm-hmm. of juries and and you know that was unusual even then but now it's virtually impossible mm-hmm. um... there's a little bit of of help in the sense that uh, some big firms many big firms to their credit are increasingly uh, taking on pro bono assignments so that it gets their younger people into court and mm-hmm. client opportunities that way. Mm-hmm. But by and large, you know, the complaints you'll hear from young people in big firms is, look, I have this small slice of this thing I'm working on. I have no sense of the whole. I don't have any sense of autonomy. Uh, meanwhile, you know, if, if a partner calls me at uh, or sends me a text message at, at 10 o'clock on a Friday night, I have to respond to it. Um, mm-hmm. So technology has complicated the, the situation, uh, you know, in an even an even worse way.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So, is there any mentoring that goes on at these places? Some do. I mean, some are better than others, and that's part of the, the incentive structure. You know, if if the, whole, if the whole if the organization's myopic focus is on maximizing uh, profits then at an individual level, the incentives are going to be to make sure that you're spending your time on things that you can bill to a client. There's another complication, too, which is the latest phenomenon, and it's really increased dramatically in the last few years, has been a a tremendous amount of uh, lateral movement among law firms, partners moving from one firm to the next. And if they're going to do that, or if you're going to think about doing that as a partner, then what you're going to also do is create for yourself a client silo. You're going to protect your clients from um, exposure to other partners in your firm because guess what? It may turn out that what you want to do is leave and go do something else, and you may want to take that client with you. Mm -hmm. And so the implications for mentoring are pretty obvious. Why am I going to mentor somebody who, unless he comes with me if I leave too, may wind up on the other side of the uh, table from me uh, right. after I leave. So right. it's, 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 uh, it's, like I say, it's not a universal. There are, there are firms that still do a, a good job at mentoring, but it's a challenge because it goes against the incentive structures of most of the institutions and of the model itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one interesting thing that had occurred to me that
0: most people that go to law school have never had any interaction at all, and this is, includes the period through law school with one of these firms. I never have in my life. Right. I, I I don't know anybody who works in them. No one's. I've never I've never been a party to anything with any of them.
1: Right. I just kind of so, know them from TV. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And you know, there and and there's you know, they, there's a sort of an air of mystery about them. Um, you know, if you've never been inside the places, you know, it turns out they're just people like the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, uh, but there's an air of mystery, and and some of that mystery is a function of the the mystique of a of of the profession, and some of it is a function of the enormous wealth that they've. They've uh, that they, they now generate for particularly for equity partners. You know, yeah. one of the things, one of the reasons the model is so enduring, and so uh, uh, enticing for the people who who are at the top of these places is that the wealth that it has created for the equity owners uh, in the last 20 years has been stunning. You know, the average equity partner in 1985 made about three hundred thousand dollars a year. That's a lot of money. That yeah, is a lot of money. Exactly. That's about six hundred thousand in today's dollars. You'd say, okay, that's I'm fine with that. Well, that same group of, of the top 50 law firms in the United States, the average equity partner, you know, instead of $300,000 in 1985, uh, this year it's about a million. Six. Hmm. Um, so the model works really well, you know, for a handful, for a handful at the top. I
0: always wonder what people who have that much money do with it. Let's not talk. Uh,
1: about it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny they they figure out ways to spend it that you you, you know it's it's hard even to imagine.
0: Um, yeah, no, it is impossible for me to imagine. Um, yeah. But but anyway, you give a case study of uh, a big law firm gone bad. It's Dewey and Leboeuf. Um Can you yep. tell us that story?
1: Dewey and LaBeouf is uh, was one of the top twenty law firms in the country. It was formed by a merger of Dewey Ballantyne, which was a venerable firm that. Uh, the Dewey is from Governor Thomas Dewey, who ran for for president and lost. And uh, uh, the the firm itself actually goes back to I think 1909. And in uh, in any event, in uh, in 2007, it merged with another law firm, uh, LeBuff Lamb, uh, and the two firms became one of the largest firms in the in the country in the world, really. Um, and uh, long story short, they went from being you know, at the top of the heap, to uh, bankruptcy. There are lots of different theories, I suppose, that you could superimpose into how that happened. Well, one of it, one of them, has to do with guaranteed payments that the firm made to, uh, particularly to to lateral partners, but also to, to to partners who'd been there for a long time, guaranteed compensation. Um, and then when the when the uh, the revenues and the profits didn't come in. According to those guarantees, they issued IOUs to the owners, <laughs> saying, well, "Well, we'll pay you back someday." Yes. And, and so you, 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 they created a continuing stream of debt. But there, there are lots, of, there, there are a lot of contributing factors. But at the end of the day, I view Dewey as a as, an, as a kind of a, a paradigmatic example of of not an unusual firm. Although that's what big firm lawyers all over the country were were doing. I can guarantee you, when Dewey and LeBouffe failed in May of. Uh, 2012 it declared bankruptcy went into the bankruptcy court Uh, big law firm leaders all over the country I'm sure were picking up the newspaper and reading about these things that Dewey had done and shaking their heads and saying how stupid, how stupid, how stupid boy I'm glad we don't do that Um, and that's because lawyers are are really great at a skill that, that we call distinguishing adverse precedent from us and uh, but the reality is that much of what undid Dewey, I think, is very common to the model that is uh, prevailing throughout the firm. It's the aggressive lateral hiring of top partners. it's It's pulling up the ladder. It's, it's, uh, it's all of the things that that, I think create real and continuing instability for lots of law firms. Dewey wasn't the first. You know, a year earlier we were talking about another big firm in DC called Howry. Um, two years earlier, we were talking about a couple of other big firms out on the West Coast. So, and, and they're always the same phenomenon. They're trying to grow. They're trying to grow their profits. They're going off trying to hire you know, big grain makers with book of biz- books of business. And they're squeezing every dollar they can um, for you know, a handful of people that benefit in the short run i mean in the in the longer run actually they probably benefited in the longer run too because the rainmakers wind up going off to other places and Mm -hmm. and still making decent money so Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. well uh, near the end of the book um you have some suggestions about how we might uh pop or deflate this bubble
1: Um, yeah let's talk
0: a little bit about those what should law schools do
1: well i don't know that law schools are going to change their stripes at all um but but if I had the ability to do it, I would I would figure out a way to impose a financial accountability to uh, ultimate law school behavior that results in uh, taking into account what happens to their students. So for example, um, one of the big disconnects right now is that the money that goes into the system through the students, um, the law schools don't ever have to worry about. Um, if you had a situation where, for example, uh, lawyers, young lawyers. Could declare bankruptcy. And there was never a good reason why they couldn't, by the way, but we don't need to digress into that. Um, the if if law school students, law students could declare bankruptcy, and if a bankruptcy court could make a finding that one of the reasons for the bankruptcy or one of the primary contributors was a student's educational law school debt, and on, based on that finding, the federal government, which now stands behind all these loans, could go back and actually sue the law school or the or the university mm-hmm. to get the money get that money back mm-hmm. i think you'd have a dramatic change in the behavior of uh, of law school deans because if you start all of a sudden there's a there's a financial implication uh, or repercussion to to aggressive recruiting that is is putting students in a position where they're not going to get jobs i think that would change that could change things pretty dramatically mm-hmm. um and so it's, you know, but there's still behavior that's that's just, just makes no sense at all. I mean, we're going to continue. We've got, you know, half a dozen or more law schools, many of which are state funded, that are online to come on, you know, in the next five or ten years. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got this, this growing bubble of glut of lawyers. Um, and, and we've got taxpayer dollars that are helping to get law schools off the ground mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. taxpayer dollars that are going to fund students who won't be able to get jobs when they come out. makes no sense at all. Right, And then the third year? Third year, I'd get rid of it if I could, but failing that, I I think the the better thing would be to continue along the lines of of this sort of experiential uh, kind of learning where at least a student coming out of law school would feel equipped, if they could do nothing else, to be able to hang out a shingle and actually deal with a client Hmm. and a real-life legal problem. You come out of law school today, and you, you don't even know how to write a contract. Yeah. You study contracts, but you don 't know how to write one. Yeah. You know you study criminal law, but you don 't know how to handle a, a plea agreement or, or you know plea bargain if you have a criminal case a criminal defendant um, so that, you know emphasis a greater emphasis on practical training will not create more jobs, but it will at least create an ability for students i think to perhaps find other ways to make a living using their law degrees
0: yeah i don 't want this to sound snarky or anything, but one of the things that surprised me about Barack Obama. Um, who I actually knew at Harvard Law School, I used to play basketball really? with him, yeah. um, he was a good guy, uh, is that he became a law professor and had never practiced law, as far uh, as I can tell.
1: Um, I think, no, I think he did practice. Um, he was at, uh, 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 at a small Chicago firm um for a few years
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: do law professors generally practice before they become law professors or is that no
1: no um, <laughs> no and that's one of the that's one of the problems you know the the embedded the the embedded the tenured embedded interests in the current regime are extremely profound mm. um and and while you're talking about law school classmates, one of my classmates was uh, chief justice roberts mm-hmm. um who i didn't know and uh but another was a good friend of mine uh who who, who uh uh, Russ Feingold, from uh, Senator, former Senator from Wisconsin. Yeah, Russ Feingold. Yeah. So yeah, so, so you see, you meet all, you meet a lot of interesting people yeah, at Harvard. Sure, but right. Uh, anyway, right.
0: right. So uh, what should the big law firms do?
1: Well, big law firms aren't going to change at all. Um, the, the the for the most part, I I don't think because it's the this current regime is far too lucrative. For the few that benefit and who are in control of the situation, but I think change is going to come whether they want it or not, and I think it's going to come from two places, maybe three. Um, the first place is going to come from is clients, because I think I think increasingly clients are becoming uh, more and more skeptical of whether whether they're getting value uh, out of some of the out of some of the lawyers that they're hiring for some of the tasks that they're hiring them, which sort of relates to a second point, which is. Uh, technology is having an implication here. So that I used the example earlier of of somebody sitting at a computer screen and reviewing documents. Well, there are, there are programs now that are being developed that take a lot of that work out of lawyers' hands. And if you have the choice between plugging in a computer program or playing in as, paying an associate three or $400 an hour uh, to look at things on a computer screen, it, it's going to become uh, pretty easy to see how most uh, clients are going to respond. The, the third thing, though, I think is going to be the most interesting, and that is, you know, just based on the class that I've been teaching at Northwestern, uh, the undergraduate class in particular, uh, the, the real issue is whether the, the next generation of lawyers is is really going to look at this model and think that it's working. And I think an awful lot of them sort of, at least as we go through the process of, of unpacking it and, and seeing how it works and how it doesn't work and couple it with, you know, career dissatisfaction levels and and so forth, I think an awful lot of, very talented young people who will become lawyers, uh, as they should, are going to look at, at the models that my generation of baby boomers has created and say, you know what, this doesn't look like it's working all that well, and we're just going to do something else, and they're going to vote with their feet. And whether that, whether enough of them do that to actually destabilize the model in that way remains to be seen. But I'll tell you, at the end of the day, the law is a service profession. And if you cannot continue as an institution, uh, as a law firm, to attract the best and the brightest, uh, then your days are numbered.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: What advice would you give
0: a young person thinking about going to law school and, and oh, in that the profession?
1: Yeah, that's that's easy. Just uh, uh, number one, don't be afraid to confront your own confirmation bias. Um, take a hard look at what it is you think. One of the first class questions I ask. In fact, I make them write a paper on it. Very first short paper uh... in my undergraduate classes tell me what you think being a lawyer means and then sit back and think about whether that's really right uh, learn as much as you can you know question everything be skeptical of of promises that people make and and uh, representations that people make about uh, what the, the life of a lawyer uh, is going to be like what law school is going to be like, mm-hmm. what your prospects are, and and there's also a, a very personal element of it as well, which is, you know, the truth of the matter is, I love being a lawyer and I love the profession. That's the reason I wrote the book, um, but um, not everyone should. And there are certain, you know, there, there's a there's a certain self awareness that you if you can achieve it earlier rather than later in life, it'll serve you very well in terms of making decisions about what you want to do. And um, you know, very often, I think, as I mentioned at the very beginning, I think students wind up in law school um, because they can't really figure out what to do next. You know, it's the last bastion of the liberal arts major who just doesn't know what to do next. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good reason to go to law school. Go to law school because you really want to be a lawyer and and understand what that means, um, and then make a make an informed decision. And and no one else can make that for you. But mm-hmm. but. But make an informed decision and do every learn everything you can about it uh, before you make it. And then I suppose the last thing I would say is, if it turns out you made a mistake, don't be afraid to admit it. Yeah. So if if you get into it, you think, know, well, this this is this is not for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, don't throw good money after bad in terms of your in terms of your life. I don't mean that money in a literal sure. sense, sure. but. Uh, and same same for practice, you know there are lots of people that start on one path and then realize this isn't working, and they do something else, and they become very fulfilled even as practicing lawyers, but it's much different from where they started
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i I reserved the last few minutes of our discussion to talk about something which is touched upon in your book it's definitely relevant, uh, but it's relevant to lots of uh what would I call it jobs in the United States, and that's the notion of what a profession is. Uh, yeah. being a lawyer is it, lawyering is a profession, right?
1: I like to think it is, and I do think it still is. Um, the difficulty comes when um, you you lose track of what your professional mission is. I think, and I think that what's what what concerns me about the legal profession is that it's it's evolved in a way that has caused it to assume the trappings of a business or even an industry um, in ways that undermine traditional really great notions of what it means to be a profession. You know, it's uh you go back to the to, to lawyer statesman and 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 the whole you know a whole range of different kinds of things, but the, you know the law is not supposed to be the law is not supposed to be a short term profit maximizing business <laughs> yeah. you know we're, we're, we're better than that we're, we're more important than that you know you, you know when I, when I was in law school, the guys that wanted to make a lot of money were on the other side of the Charles River at the business school yeah. um, and, and, and I didn't like most of them to be honest, yeah. um, but they they were different and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that is not what the law is, is supposed to be. If you if you had had surveyed uh, my law school class, you know, 30 years ago, you wouldn't have found anybody, I think, certainly very few people, who were there because they thought they were going to make a lot of money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They were go to, those people were going to go to business school, mm-hmm. and they would have made a lot of money, you know, doing that. But now I think the problem is, and this is the real danger, uh, we find ourselves, many of us in this situation, where you know people at the very top of these big firms are making a lot of money, and, um, and to some extent, it's a problem for for deans who have a lot of prestige and many of them make a lot of money, and you get used to it. And the next thing you know, you you know you start believing your own press releases, and maybe you think you're even worth it, and and then you have to do these these terrible things to uh, really the next generation in order to preserve your position. You know, mm-hmm. you pull up the ladder. You you know, it's uh, it's just not a it's just not a pretty picture. So. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that we're lost. I think there's tr- there are tremendous pockets of, of, of great work that the legal profession does every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's, we can do better. Do they, do they teach professional ethics in law school? Yes. Yeah,
0: they do. <laughs> they do. That's sort of um, funny. Uh, yes,
2: they do. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I guess just to editorialize a moment, I, um, the way I understand it is a profession has standards. Uh, that is, not everything is for sale, and there are certain things that you will not do. Uh, If you are going to be a member of that profession and you might even not do them to your own detriment and you will do them in service of your mission, use the word mission. It's a good word for that. And I think lawyers particularly, it's always been strange to me because my understanding is that uh, people who are, you're a member of the bar or you're an officer of the court or what is that status exactly?
1: Right. No, you're right. You got it. Yep. Yeah. uh,
0: These are official. These are, these are not, um, you know, you're a, you're kind of a functionary of the, of the commonwealth.
1: Well you're a you know I mean you, you it's I mean I don't think it's too much to say that you're a defender of civilization. Right. You know without rules and the, and lawyers to uh to insist on their enforcement, you know we we descend into chaos pretty rapidly, which yeah. of course is why Shakespeare's uh, anarchist in Henry the Sixth said, first thing we do, let's yeah. kill all the lawyers." Yeah. Um, people now, people now have a different way that they like to look at that line, um, which is with contempt. But yeah. um, no, there, there's there's something to that, and it's it's what I think at least drew initially most people, um, and still draws perhaps most people into the law. And, and that's why it's unfortunate to lose track of that, uh, but it's easy to do.
0: Yeah, I, I think, I think it, the people that I know who are uh, in the legal profession are, are all, uh, I think, professionals. I mean, there are definitely things they would do and things they would not do for right. uh, for God or mother or money. Um, but it does seem to me that there are uh, there's a certain cohort of the legal profession that has kind of lost sight of this. That is to say the public mission of the profession. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I think prof- a lot of professors have lost this as well. That they don't—they don't really see that they are to do anything other than the things in their job description, and they're pretty amorphous and uh, can be um, taken advantage of in various ways. Uh, right. So right. you know, like one of the things that professors are very bad at, and this show is all about fixing, is getting the word out to the public about what they do. I mean, we're we're in the business of public education, in addition to our students, but we do a bad job of it. Right. no but there's no very few people care about that at all um you will not make a good career in um academia by becoming a quote unquote popularizer uh, that right. would be to your detriment in fact no
1: you're no, no you're better off you know finding some arcane niche yeah. or something to write about and and uh, put get figure out a way to get it produced in a scholarly journal Yeah, yeah. and um, and people just sort of shake their heads and say well, this, this sure looks like a waste of somebody's time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not, you know, a, to, to peers, it's not a waste of time, and you are pushing no. knowledge forward and things like this, and that's all well right. and good, but the fact yep. of the matter yep. is we're failing in part of our mission, and no one seems to, or, or very few people seem to recognize this, or they recognize it and say, there's nothing we can do about it. That's um, right. Which and, and, is,
1: that's, and that's the most offensive line at all, of yeah, all, right, me. Yeah. And it's certainly for the legal profession, because at the end of the day, y- y- you absolutely can do something about it. You know, we, we people can, people have, Power over their lives and they can make decisions. Yeah. And you may feel like it's in some ways a futile act. Um, you may feel like you're you're subject to this, the overriding institutional pressures of wherever you happen to be. Uh, but you know, I think that's an excuse to sort of sit back and let just let bad things happen. So
0: yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there. I do, and I, I think it, I think that's right. Um, I think that's right. And so I hope that people who are in the legal profession and thinking about going into the legal profession, uh, read this book and listen to what you have said in this podcast and bring all that to mind and then make an intelligent decision about what you're going to do. And I want to thank Stephen Harper for being on the show today. We've been talking about his book, The Lawyer Bubble, A Profession in Crisis. Um, Before we conclude the interview, though, Stephen, I want to ask you our traditional final question. That is, what are you working on now?
1: Well, for the most part, I'm I'm working on revising my syllabus so I can include the lawyer bubble as <laughs> an assigned book. Um, and boy, you know, it turns out it's a lot easier to to put a syllabus together when you've actually written the book that you want yeah. for the purpose of the class. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of other projects that I'm sort of thinking about. I I'm a, I write an article regularly for um, weekly for the American Lawyer magazine, and I'm, I re- most recently have now started writing for the Business Insider. And, um, between that and teaching. I, I also have a, a potential, I, I began thinking about whether there's even a deeper story to the law firm failure that we were talking about before. That mm-hmm. is the, the Dewey and the Buff, uh, spectacular yeah. implosion, which was enormous news when it was happening. Yeah. Um, and I've been following that very closely and I, I may, I may turn that into, into my next big mm-hmm. project. Well,
0: that's terrific. Well, uh, I'd like to thank Stephen Harper for being on the show, and I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, and I hope everybody has a great week. Thank you. Same here. Thank you, Marshall. All right. Bye, bye, Stephen. Bye.